Vamos dar ação. So this afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. This time focusing especially on the deepest dimension of compassion. The Tibetan, which is almost certainly just a direct translation from the Sanskrit, reads Kyapa Duche Kidunga. Kyapa is pervasive. Duche is the Tibetan for samskara or composite. And then Dunga is suffering. So pervasive, composite, suffering. We'll get back to that, but this is the deepest dimension of suffering to which we are vulnerable. And as we address that level and then arouse the aspiration, may we all be free. One may wonder, why does it need to be suffering at all? Really, couldn't the universe have done without it? You know, was it really all that necessary? And since it's there, it's very easy to look for someone who did it, somebody to blame, somebody to blame, you know. So when a, when a very briefly, in a theistic context, it does become very problematic. And this has been recognized for many, many centuries, that if your ultimate reality, your belief in your refuge, is in an omnipotent God, who is omnibenevolent, all-compassionate, then why would such a being who could have created the world any way he liked done it with so much suffering? And so theologians have been struggling with that one for years, centuries. I will not. I'll just say that's one view. When we come to materialism, then the whole notion of who done it, that is, who did it to us, vanishes because there's no one who did it. It's just, this is just a natural event. The universe is arising out of impersonal, unconscious processes and it's just playing itself out and so there's no one to blame it's just suffering is just part of nature but even there one wonders why should sentient beings animals humans why should we why should we have to be so much suffering because there's obviously there's an enormous amount of suffering a lot of it's not even human made animals just are making each other suffer all the time you're either one of the eaters or the eaten but I don't think there's a third category and you can be both Sooner or later you will, will, you will be, probably. And so just why so much suffering? And so there is, a, there is a response, of course. I give a very simple one from the perspective of evolutionary biology, and that is pain, especially physical pain, mental pain goes along with it, is very useful. It's not that anybody did it to us, so there's no teleology involved. But it, then we can ask, well, rather than the teleological question, what's it good for, that is, why is there pain? Then we simply say, look, pain is happening, and so what's it good for? And it's good for something. And that is, pain is very good if you're injured or you're ill, that you don't walk on the injured leg. When you're ill, you don't try to run a marathon, that you try to take care of yourself, you try to you know, heal. But people who, there's very rare, very rare disease. I've seen, I know of one case of it. It was terribly tragic, of a little girl who, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, could experience no physical pain at all. It was a very rare disease, and it was devastating, terrible for her. She'd already lost one eye by just putting her finger in her eye, and she had to have, had, had always wear goggles on the other eye so she wouldn't pluck that one out. She could experience no pain at all. She'd broken multiple limbs. She'd had multiple abrasions. She'd put her, her, her hand on a, on a burning hot, you know, on a, on a stove. She wouldn't experience anything. She would see her hand sizzling away, and, and she wouldn't experience anything. Well, of course, this is a terrible, terrible disease. 
And she has to be monitored at all times. Now, she, this was a little, I saw the photo. She was a little girl. She must be older now. But clearly, that's the rare exception. So, but that highlights that, well, when we experience pain, then we don't put our hands, at least twice, on burning stoves and so forth and so on. When we're ill, we don't run around and pretend as if we're healthy. We lie low. We try to get help and so forth. So from this materialistic perspective, pain is useful in the sense that it helps us to survive because without it, it would be very easy not to. And then if we're surviving, we have a real chance of procreating. And so pain is useful for survival and procreation, which is absolutely the bottom line of evolutionary biology altogether. But I keep on asking why. But why should we survive and procreate? You know, what's, what's so good about that? Is it just life somehow meaningful just because we keep on procreating and procreating? Are we going someplace? Are we evolving towards some higher species? Are we becoming better and better and better? And according to mainstream evolutionary theory, we're not progressing towards anything. We are simply, from generation to generation, with genetic mutation and so forth, we're simply adapting to ever-changing environments. But we're not getting better. We're simply, the, the environment changes, we adapt. Those who adapt well survive and procreate. Those who don't die don't, pro- don't procreate, and so there it goes on. So for this perspective, then, suffering is there so that we can survive and procreate and produce another generation of sentient beings that will survive and procreate and suffer. And so, in other words, suffering is to enable the next generation to suffer. And they survive and procreate so the next one can suffer, and so forth. In other words, it's just all about perpetuating samsara, not from lifetime to lifetime as one single con- continuum, but from generation to generation, it just keeps the ball rolling and more and more procreation. But the little downside here is that materialism in particular as a worldview that is dominated has become the state religion in places like the former Soviet Union, communist China, North Korea, and so forth and so on. But then also much broader than that in the so-called developing countries, materialism is so, so dominant. And it has been really very much on the rise since the mid-19th century. And if we look, if we plot the the number of other species that have gone extinct over the course of human history. I think you'll find that almost all of those that human beings have made gone extinct have happened during the last 150 years. Coincidentally, right during the time of materialism's rise and domination, and also in terms of just the massive desecration of the environment, the pollution of the groundwater, the air, the global, uh, global warming, ozone layer, and so forth, almost all of that has taken place the vast majority of the damage we've just generally done to the environment is all during the reign of this new religion called materialism. So it seems to be something like a disease that kills its hosts. You know, when the whole society becomes just immersed in a materialistic worldview in which all of the vision is focusing outwards to external resources with our insatiable desire to be happy, our never-ending desire to be happy, and we're absolutely, like our head is in a vice, look only outward, and I want to be happy. I just consume something. I'm happy, and I want to be happier. I will consume more. I will consume more. More, more. And so the developing countries are then just consuming massively, and the, the developed countries and the developing countries are trying to consume as rapidly as the developed countries so that we can all annihilate each other as quickly as possible. So materialism may be a self-healing disease, and that is it kills its host. But it's quite sad. So there's one explanation of suffering and what it's good for. It enables us to survive so that we can kill ourselves. Something like that. 
But if we move to Buddhism, we move to Buddhism, once again, there's no one to blame. There's no external creator. Nobody did it, did it to us. Suffering is simply it's the first reality that the Buddha said, here it is, acknowledge it, recognize it. There it is. So this reality of suffering. And then as we go to this deepest level that, we do, that, that we'll attend to this afternoon, this pervasive composite suffering. Ah, yeah. Karasa, zajik dunga. And then if we, so pervasive, it's pervasive in the sense that this dimension of suffering pervades all of samsara. The desire realm, form realm, formless realm, wherever you are in samsara, you are not free from this disease. This dimension, you've got it. It's kind of like a clingy. Just go wherever you like, but it's always clinging. It's always with you. And then it has to do with composites, and it is a form of dukkha. So it's a dukkha that is pervasive, pervading all of samsara. It's tied inextricably with the whole notion of composite phenomena, and it is dukkha. And then if we ask, well, that's just the name of it, Kyapadujikidunga, but what's its nature? What is the nature of this? So now we just deal with Buddhism. And that is, what is the nature of this suffering? And if we just point right to it, it's, the answer is, Zakche Nyewara Lembe Pumbo in Tibetan. Zakche is tainted. Nyewara Lembe is closely held. And Pumbo are the skandhas, the body and mind. The body and mind. So the tainted, closely held skandhas. If you want to know, why are we suffering? What's the very nature of this vulnerability to suffering altogether? Just fundamentally, why are we vulnerable to suffering? It's not genetics. It's not biology. It's not God. It's these skandhas, these tainted, closely held skandhas. And the phrasing is so interesting. And it's first called zakchet. Zakchet. Contaminated, polluted, defiled, tainted. I like the word tainted. Tainted, what's tainted? The five skandhas are tainted. Well, what does that mean? It means that our experience of being embodied and our experience of being enminded, that is having our, our human minds, having our human bodies, my body, my mind, that my body, my mind arose independence upon previous karma. The karma was tainted, which is to say, fundamentally, it was imbued with at least delusion and probably the other mental afflictions as well, craving hostility. And so this ripening of karma that I experience is my embodiment my psychophysical embodiment in this lifetime, this is coming, this is manifesting as a result of previous karma. Not just any kind of karma, tainted karma. What's that? Karma that is tainted by, configured by, delusion, craving, hostility, but fundamentally delusion. So that's the wave. I spoke, I think, just yesterday of a wave on the one hand, a wave of tainted karma rising up to meet us that comes from the experiences we have from the environment, from other people and so forth, but very much so the wave of our own experience of being embodied and being in minded, and that is here we are in the midst of our minds, as I think as we've all vividly discovered. So that's one wave that's rising to meet us, a rising independence upon prior causing conditions, and most fundamentally past karma, tainted karma. So that's the tainted part. But the next part is so interesting. Nyewaralemba, Nyewaralemba, this closely held so we have these tainted skandhas. That's what's rising to meet us. You wake up and what rises, what's the first thing that rises when you wake up? Here are my tainted skandhas. You know, oh, my body lying in bed, my mind attending to the body, the environment around me, seeing this manifestation of tainted karma. But when it comes to our skandhas, it comes to the body and the mind, just simply put, our, our body mind, they are closely held. 
And so this is where the habitual propensities, the bhakcha or vasanas, the habitual propensities come. It's not just that we have the appearance of these tainted psychophysiological constituents or components arising to us, but we rise to meet them, again, like two waves crashing together. And what rises to meet the appearances of these tainted skandhas is this close, this old habitual tendency, propensity of closely holding on, closely holding on to, identifying with I and mine, my body, my feelings, my mind, my desires and intentions, my hopes and fears, my my personal history and my future. And whoa, boy, that fist is really tight because it's closely holding everything that has to do with intimately related to this body-mind, these composites, these skandhas. And so you have those two waves crashing together, the tainted skandhas, and then rising up to meet them and clasping onto them, this, this tendency of closely holding onto and identifying. And there you have it. That's why we suffer. That's why we suffer. Nobody else did it to us. Even the karma that's ripening up to us, our karma, it's not God didn't give it to us, Buddha didn't give it to us, nobody else, even collective karma, nobody else gave it to us. The karma that's riding, arising to meet us individually, we've sown the seeds for, we are the creators of our own destiny, and we are continuing to create it right now. But those two waves crashing together, and then again in the intersection of those two waves, that's where life happens. That's where the present moment happens. That's where samsara reveals itself. But this closely held business hap- happening as a habitual propensity, bhakcha, habitual propensity, an old, old habit of closely holding on to, closely hold, clinging to, adhering to, sticky, sticky, really attachment. And I, I'm curious, I was thinking of an old memory of Socrates. I, didn't, I don't think I knew him personally, but memory of a reading of some of his dialogues, specifically in Plato's book, Phaedo, Phaedo. I think I pronounced it correctly, P-H-A-E-D-O, in which Plato, Plato narrating Socrates, Socrates speaking from a lineage, from a tradition, a, line, a guru lineage tracing back to Pythagoras, speaks of what happens after death. And he said, for the ordinary being in which we have developed these strong propensities, and this is straight from Plato. It's going to sound really Buddhist, but it's Plato, Socrates, and tracing back to Pythagoras. Because of these strong propensities of sensual craving and corporeal desire, corporeal desire, sexuality and so forth, when these are deeply habituated, then the ordinary person dies. You shed this mortal coil and then you are a spirit, he says. You're a spirit and you rove around and before long you develop this insatiable craving to be incorporated again, to be embodied again. And you look and you're roving around, got to be embodied again, got to be embodied again. And lo and behold, you get what you ask for. And moreover, the type of embodiment you get, get corresponds very closely to the type of habitual propensities you've accumulated. That's straight Plato, straight Socrates, and quite interesting. So, but that's where the closely held comes. When you're not embodied, you desperately want to get re-embodied. It's an old habit. A kind of security blanket, wrapping ourselves up in a body. He said, for the philosopher, the true lover of wisdom, then, and this is so, this is such a faint memory for modern philosophy, I think all schools of modern philosophy, for the philosopher, the philosopher practicing philosophy, 
and practicing for death then cultivates a disillusionment with sensual craving and corporeal desires. So to be a philosopher is to be a renunciate. Moves beyond that. Show me the philosophy course nowadays where students have to, you know, if you're going to sign up for philosophy 101, you know, okay, now you have to start really applying antidotes to sensual craving. Yeah. That'll be a popular course. But this was Socrates. This was when philosophy really meant love of wisdom and not simply love of tenure or something of that sort. I'm sorry. But not very. <laughs> For the philosopher who, who outgrows this rather infantile sensual craving corporeal desires of the desire realm, he says, for a philosopher, the philosopher doesn't come back. The philosopher goes to another realm another realm that is wise and free of human ills and so forth. And it sounded to me an awful lot like the form realm. <coughs> so that's Plato. We come back to Buddhism. So here we are, quite clearly, this is phenomenological, but this is not just believing in something the Buddha said because he said it, or even Plato said because he said it. It's interesting that they seem to be such a convergence here, since as far as we know, Socrates knew nothing about Buddhism. Independent laboratory. Ah! Circumstantial evidence is pointing in the same direction. In Buddhism, here we have this phenomenology that is it's, it's focusing not on the past, when did we fall into samsara, but right now, how, how are we repeatedly falling, tripping back into samsara from moment to moment to moment, and we, we are initiating, we are reigniting our samsara every moment that we glom onto, cling to, and identify with these psychophysiological components, these, these skandhas, these tainted skandhas. And in that way, they not only rise to meet us, but we rise to meet them. And in that way, we get a lock on samsara and keep on spinning on this hedonic treadmill. Now, how does this occur? And we can watch it occur. So what I'm saying here is experience. You can, you can see whether it's what I'm saying is true or not. It's not a matter of belief. Right? And that is the phenomena rise up to meet us the phenomena that the space of the body and the tactile events arising within this body. And then there comes this conceptual mind. This came up in a conversation just recently. We have this somatic feel, the tactile sensations arising it. And then there's our sense of the body. And this suggests there that we really are incorporated. But of course, my body, 185 pounds or so of my body, flesh, bones, sinew, my body, my whole concept, my body is imputed upon the visual impressions, and the tactile sensations. You don't find that big, chunky, inherently existent, substantial body. You don't find that in the somatic sensations. They're rather thin and airy and just arising in space. Visual impressions just arise in space. You know, so where is that great, big, chunky thing? Oh, that big, chunky thing is the one that has the somatic sensations, has the visual impressions, has the shape, has smell, taste, and so forth. Hmm, but somehow we never quite see it unless we get locked into our concepts and then we see it all the time. Oh yeah, this is my body. And so the sensations arise, this old habit of closely holding onto them arises. We glom onto my body. Ah, good, now I feel secure. I know where I am. I'm here. And then thoughts, emotions, desires, and so forth arise. We lock onto those. Those are mine. Those are mine. Those are either I or mine. And on the basis of this, the whole experience of the body, 
including our visual impressions, that we look into a mirror, we see ourselves, we, ourselves. As I look at my hand, they say, oh, that's, yes, those are my hands. None of this is a person. None of, nothing that arises from the body is a person. Not the appearance of hands, not the tactile sensations of hands. Nothing is a person. The brain isn't a person. No organ is a person. This is why the Buddha so meticulously went through each of the organs and parts of the body, marrow and skin and hair and so forth. It's kind of like, do you see? Do you see? Do you see? There's no one there. It's not, there's nothing there that is a person. Go through it again. If you didn't get it the first time, check it again. 35, I didn't leave anything out. There's nobody there. It's just a bunch of body parts. That's all. Nobody there. And then we do the same thing with the mind. We say, yep, feelings. Feelings are feelings. Thoughts, emotions, memories, fantasies, desires, hopes, fears, intentions, the whole array, states of consciousness, recognition, attention, intelligence, problem solving. They are exactly what they are. And what they are not is a person. And so so in the midst of a whole bunch of things that are not a person, how do we come up with being a person that we can say, I am intelligent, I am unintelligent, handsome, ugly, old, young, I am, I am, I am, when none of these things are a person. And so this is where the Madhyamaka comes in really sharply. I'm going to skip the Theravadis for a moment to just go right to Madhyamaka. And the Madhyamaka says, it's quite right. Nothing in the body is a person. Nothing in the mind is a person. Awareness itself is not a person, a sentient being. Awareness isn't a sentient being, it's just awareness. There's nothing more to it than that. But on the basis of, on the basis of designation of the body, then we say, I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm a man, not a woman. Why? Got a male body. I checked. And so there it is. You know? So I'm a man. Is, the, is the, the male body, is that a human being? Is that a man? No, it's just a male body. And then we check out our mental tendencies. And I am this, and I'll start describing my, my temperament my mental qualities, and I am this, I am that, I am that. None of those mental properties are a person. None of this is a person. But on the basis of that, I will say I'm this, 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 describing mental attributes. And so the, the body, the mind, they are the basis of designation upon which we impute, we superimpose. Me. And then we tell the narrative. This is the kind of person I am, all based upon things that I am not. Right? And so we literally conceive of ourselves. Okay? We literally conceive of ourselves based upon a basis of de- designation that is not a person. We superimpose a person. And then, so it's like we've just written a fictitious novel. We've just written a character into a novel. It's kind of fun. We all like to be storytellers, and we are. But then, just telling a story is no problem. But then we reify it. Then we take this sense, of this self that we have conceived, and then we reify it. Almost like, what's his name? Geppetto? Geppetto? Pinocchio's creator. Geppetto? Geppetto. I asked the expert. Geppetto and Pinocchio. He creates it, and then suddenly it comes to life, you know? And it seems to be independent of Geppetto, okay? So we are both Geppetto and Pinocchio. Geppetto is the process, the tendency of imputing, designating, conceiving, creating with conceptual imputation, and then somehow Pinocchio comes to life. And that's the reified self. 
The story is a fiction, because actually wooden people don't walk around and talk. And their noses don't get longer. You know? So that actually is fiction. And so is this. <laughs> They're both fiction. So this is quite interesting. This is how we spin ourselves. This is how we conceive of ourselves. This is how we, in the words of one very, very smart Western American philosopher, Hilary Putnam, we are like novelists. We are like novelists. We are like novelists writing in the novel in which we are characters in the novel that we are composing. The loop. The loop. So on this basis, then we conceive of and then reify the impure sense of self, the ordinary sense of self, the self that is a sentient being that has mental afflictions, and I'm really screwed up and I suffer a lot and I'm so dissatisfied with myself that thank goodness I've got a Buddha nature. Kind of like having a, a, a life insurance policy. You know, I really screwed up, but thank goodness I've got that. You know, I've got something. I've got an ace in the hole and that's my Buddha nature. And one day I will definitely check it out. I might need it sometime. Glad I have it. Just have to remember where I put it. You know? I'll put it there. So that's how we conceive of ourselves. But as we move into the meditative cultivation of compassion, especially to this depth, in my experience, which is very limited, but I think it's difficult to develop genuine compassion unless we can really have a clear sense of the possibility of freedom from the suffering. Otherwise, it's just despair and it's sadness. You know, it's just that. If we're suffering from a terminal disease, there's no possibility of getting over it, or a loved one is. We may feel compassion, but it's mostly just sadness. Because what are you going to do? It's a terminal disease. It's Alzheimer's. If you have a parent who has Alzheimer's, it's mostly just sadness. And one, of course, wanting to take care of them as well as you possibly can. But as far as we know, there just is no medical rolling back of Alzheimer's or any other way that we know of. So it's just terribly sad. But may you be free, may you be free when we, just, we don't see any possibility of that whatsoever. The only way you're going to be free is getting a new body. And I think it's hard. Sadness for sure. That for sure. Sadness for oneself, for the loved one, for the Alzheimer's patient and so forth. But for compassion, this aspiration to arise, there needs to be some glimmering of hope right? that there is actually release. Then the aspiration really can come up. But we're not going to really put our hearts into an aspiration that we feel is completely futile. At least I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I can be patient for as long as space remains, for as long as ancient beings remain. That's a long one. But it's not hopeless. And so how to have, how to draw in that hope, how to draw in that ray of light that could suggest maybe there really is a possibility of freedom from this level. Blatant suffering, sure, often it really can. We can do something. We can put, throw money at it, throw intelligence at it, creativity, skills, and so forth. A lot of blatant suffering can be dispelled in those ways. But when you come to this deepest level, how can we imagine that actually this might, there might be liberation from that? And I'll go straight to Vajrayana because I want to get back to the meditation. And that is, if we seek to cultivate this deepest level of compassion, that all beings may be free of this dimension, this deepest dimension of suffering, and we're arousing this, yearn this yearning, this aspiration, from the perspective 
of an ordinary person like me who's basically drowning in that level of suffering. I haven't even seen the surface of the ocean. I'm like 100 feet below the surface. And up above there, there's freedom from pervasive composite suffering. Look, 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 look. And I'm just drowning. You know, it's going to be kind of hard from that perspective, I think. When you're 100 feet below the water trying to, may all sentient beings who are drowning be free. Look, 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 look. It's a bit hard. When you say, I haven't, I haven't even gotten free myself. I mean, it would be nice for other people to free, but all I'm seeing is a lot of water and glug, 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 swallowing it. So one possibility here, it's not to say that's impossible. We can feel compassion for others who are experiencing the same suffering that we are. That's not impossible. But there is another, another route. There's another approach. Some of you might want to avail yourself of. I find very useful myself. And that is this poor sentient being who's glug, 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 drowning in the ocean of pervasive composite suffering, this deepest level. That sentient being, that agent, that person, that samsaric being that you call yourself, that I call myself, recognize that that too is a being that was conceptually designated. It wasn't already there. It's not inherently existent, not absolutely existent not intrinsically existent, not existent, and here's the core of Madhyamaka, not existent independently of conceptual designation. That's what emptiness means in the Prasankaka Madhyamaka. And that is, if something exists independently of any conceptual designation, if it was already there, existing by its own nature, its own intrinsic inherent properties, before it was labeled, before it was designated, it's inherently existent. And it's not empty. It's really there. And then we just throw a little, like throwing little piece of paper at it, then we throw a label, like label. You know, oh, that's a chariot. That's a sentient being. But it was already a chariot. It was already a sentient being. It's just waiting for you to call it whatever language, whatever term you like in whatever language you like. But it was already that. It was already macho. It was already what it was. You know, There it is. Interesting mudra. It always comes out at the right time. This fist. And the Madhyamaka says there's nothing of that. You open it up and it's empty. There's nothing inside. And that is, there's nothing inside this reified concept we have. I am a sentient being. I'm really a sentient being. I'm really not enlightened. I really am saturated by mental afflictions. That's all a conceptual designation. I, I, I. Superimposed upon that which is not I or mine. Not intrinsically. And so as we constructed it, as we conceived it, constructed and reified it, recognize that we've reified it and stop doing it, and then take us even a step further back and stop conceiving it. Just dissolve the whole edifice. First of all, the reification, which is flat-out delusion, but then dissolve the story, unwrite the novel, pull, back, pull the string back in of this whole yarn, this whole story we've been telling ourselves about ourselves, of how I'm such a miserable, poor, sentient being with such a crappy personal history. You know, Just roll it back in. Unwrite the novel. Let alone the reification. Just, un- just pull it back in. Pull it back in until you're quiet. Until you have no personal history. And you've stopped designating yourself at all as a sentient being. Reified or unreified. Whether you're taking the story to be real Geppetto really did create Pinocchio and Pinocchio really did get a long nose whenever he lied. That's reifying it. 
Just unwrite the whole story and just take it right back. As you conceived it, unconceive it. Roll it back right into no story. No conventional self. Emptiness. All that's left is Buddha nature. And then on the basis of your own Buddha nature, with that as a basis of designation, Buddha nature, as a basis of designation, then designate yourself, for example, as Avalokiteshvara, the personification of compassion, enlightened compassion. But first of all, you have to clean out the room. You have to empty the room. Again, you can't have two people in there, in the same room, the poor schmuck that's me, the sentient being, and I'll just kind of step aside a little bit and say, okay, come on in, Avalokiteshvara. In fact, let's become Siamese twins. I'll become half Avalokiteshvara and half Alan Wallace, Ph.D., that must be a better Avalokiteshvara than a person who only has a master's degree or BA. Right? So that's when we get really confused and literally confused. When we don't realize the emptiness of ordinary self, hold on to it, and then get an empowerment for Avalokiteshvara and think, I was already pretty good. I'm a Stanford PhD. I want you to know, just in case anybody didn't know, I was a Stanford PhD. And not only Stanford PhD, but I'm also Avalokiteshvara. That's, that's another line item in my CV, but that's a really good one. B.A. Amherst, Ph.D. Stanford, and Avalok Deshvara. <laughs> Thanks to Empowerment by His Holiness Dalai Lama in 1975. <laughs> Put it in the same CV, it's getting really silly really quickly. So you have to throw away the CV, which is just a story after all. Just release it into emptiness. And in that total emptiness of gender, of personal history, of sentient beingness, just unwrite the whole thing. Just set it aside. That was a nice story, but I'm moving on to another story now. Dissolve a lot all into emptiness, and then on the basis of designation of your Buddha nature, arise and designate yourself as Avalokiteshvara. Buddha nature is not a person. Avalokiteshvara is a person. But you can designate Avalokiteshvara, yourself as Avalokiteshvara, on the basis of your own Buddha, Buddha nature, as you can designate yourself as I am intelligent, I am not intelligent, I'm angry, I'm patient on the basis of your mind. Anger, patience are not human beings, but you can say I'm patient, I'm angry, I'm smart, I'm dumb, whatever. Same way, you can designate it, but this is a really useful designation. Arising out of emptiness on the basis of designation of Buddha nature, of Rikpa, designating yourself, I am Avalokiteshvara. And this is as true a story as any other, tr- as any other story. Because they say, I'm a Stanford PhD. That's a true story. Conventionally. It's a true story. It's going to be over soon. But it's a true story. I went to Stanford, got a PhD. Okay. That's just one story, though. Right? One of many stories. Not useful in this context. Dissolve that story and say, okay, let's make up a new story based upon Buddha nature. Designate self as Avalokiteshvara. Imagine now, form, form of Avalokiteshvara. Your nature, a spontaneous compassion, embodiment of limitless, great compassion. And from that perspective, from that vantage point, from that identity, since no one else was here, there was a vacancy, then from that vacancy, that vacuity, that emptiness, arises Avalokiteshvara. From that perspective, 
from that perspective of freedom, of primordial purity, then venture into meditative cultivation of compassion for all sentient beings. Arousing aspiration, may we be free of the deepest level of samsara, the deepest level of suffering, as Avalokiteshvara already is. And view it from that perspective. And there's your ray of light. There's your hope. You're envisioning it. You're imagining it. You're drawing the future into the present. Dibu Lamkir. Bringing the fruition onto the path. The Avalokiteshvara that you will realize in the future, you're taking it, you're plucking it from the future and saying, no need to wait. The future is not inherently in the future. And bring it right down, drop it into the, se- into the present moment. And from that vantage point, you all sentient beings with a heart of compassion and arouse the yearning that each one may be free of suffering on all levels, including the deepest level. Each one may be free. So, I didn't make up that meditation. It's taught in A Spacious Path of Freedom by Kama Chakmet, 17th century. Quite marvelous. Now, not all of us will relate to the iconographic image of Avalokiteshvara as portrayed in Indian Tibetan Buddhism. For those who do, very good. It's a very, very meaningful, symbolic, archetypal display, every aspect having meaning. But it's not the only possibility. You may arouse your own vision, what speaks to your heart. The whole notion of yidam, yidam, personal deity, is among the many, many manifestations of enlightened mind. Manjushri is wisdom, Vajrapani is enlightened power, Avalokiteshvara, Tara is compassion, and so forth. All of these are simply displays. They are skillful means, iconographic displays, personifications. But the whole issue of yidam is, within this Buddhist context, which one speaks to your heart? Padmasambhava, is it Buddha Shakyamuni? Is it Vajradhara, primordial Buddha? Samantabhadra, primordial Buddha? Or is it Tara? Or is it whoever it may be? Whoever speaks to your heart. So this is what I would suggest also for this practice. That is we don't have to try to squeeze ourselves into embracing some visualization or what have you that just feels alien. It doesn't really make much sense. We don't need to do that. But your own vision of the personification of compassion. It could be your own guru. It could be your own guru. Imagining your own mind indivisible. If you have a guru you, that you consider really embodies great compassion, a person like His Holiness Dalai Lama, Kalu Rinpoche, so many other great lamas of the recent times or of the past, Nagarjuna, Shantideva, and so forth and so on. Just whatever the icon is that for you most expresses to your heart there's an embodiment of compassion. Limitless, boundless, undifferentiated compassion. And imagine that. And you may, if you wish, imagine taking on that form, most essentially imagine the mind of that being. For some it might be St. Francis of Assisi. For some it may be Shantideva. For some it may be your own guru, his only Dalai Lama, whoever it may be. But imagine that being, that being whose whole essence is one of compassion, being indivisible from your own mind, non-dual from your own mind, and viewing sentient beings from that perspective, and then doing the practice. That can be much, much more powerful. 
when I've done it in both ways, sometimes if I just view all sentient beings from the perspective of Alan Wallace, Stanford PhD, it's like viewing all sentient beings from a, a, a mud puddle that's just one inch thick, one inch deep. You know, it's just all mud, just like that. So it's so flat, so having lacking in depth. 61 years is like, and it's finished. It's such a short time and so little accomplishment. And, you know, it's just so trivial, so short. It's kind of very thin, very thin vantage point to look upon all sentient beings. But if I just throw that one out next and bring in Avalokiteshvara or Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, whoever, but bring in personification of Buddha, then suddenly, rather than viewing all sentient beings from a little one-inch deep mud puddle, it's viewing all sentient beings from an ocean, an ocean of compassion. And I don't have to think it's mine, because conventionally it's not mine, right? It's not Alan Wallace hybrid Padmasambhava, Alan Wallace hybrid Avalokiteshvara. Alan Wallace dissolved, bye-bye, see you later when I need you. And now it's just Avalokiteshvara, just that. Avalokiteshvara is not an appendage, not an attribute of any of us here. Move out of the way, dissolve ordinary sense of self, and let something far more sublime come in. But recognizing it's not somebody else. We're not inviting some kind of a divine possession here. I'll move out, I'll become an empty cavern, and please come in somebody else who's a lot better than me. Not that either. Right? It's not that. It's from your own Buddha nature. Own Buddha nature. Up the deepest possible basis of designation. A good story and far infinitely more meaningful than the stories we concoct about ourselves up there in the realm of impure karma and the desire realm. So, as we venture into the meditation, finally, finally, start with yourself. Imagine freedom. If you wish, Imagine freedom as Avalokiteshvara or in whatever personification you wish that is most meaningful. Imagine becoming free. And from that vantage point of freedom, then arouse the yearning and imagine the freedom of all those around you. And you may do so in that kind of just open, spacious way of settling the mind in its natural state. From that kind of that beacon of light, your own presence here, as just an embodiment of light, a light of compassion, just a beacon And whoever comes to mind, Osama bin Laden, Obama, Republican Party, your next-door neighbor, animals, spirits, and so forth and so on, whoever comes to mind, just homogeneously, like a light that spreads out evenly in all directions in space. May we all be free. May all sentient beings be free of this deepest level of suffering, our fundamental vulnerability to suffering. So that's a possibility. Finally, please find a comfortable position.
release all appearances, and let your awareness rest in its own place, holding its own ground, knowing itself. bring this session to a close.
un lasso. It's the final footnote, a nice, I think, poetic metaphor from physics, the one I alluded to earlier. Take a volume of space and put some matter in it. So now you've added something to the space. It's space plus matter. And having added matter to it, you've already also added gravitational energy because that pervades the space around it, actually warps the space-time around it. And then add some heat and you add thermal energy and some electromagnetic energy. And so now you've added all kinds of things to empty space and it's full of all kinds of stuff like planets and stars and all that kind of stuff. Right? And now let's just do the opposite. And that is remove the matter, remove the gravitational energy, just get a big straw in this thought experiment, suck out all the matter, suck out all the electromagnetic energy, the gravitational energy, thermal energy, suck out everything that was added to space in the first place. So there's no additives. Now just space with no additions. And now what's in that space is the energy, the zero-point energy that permeates space. And according to the basic calculations, the mathematics of quantum field theory, if you, if you calculate the energy density, how much energy is there in empty space in like a cubic centimeter? And I did the hard work of that. It was, it was actually hard because I'm not a good mathematician, but I did it. 30 pages for me because I'm so slow. I mean, really slow. So I had to spell out every single step of the mathematics. It was 30, for me, it was 30 pages. But every time I wrote an equation, then I would explain it to myself to make sure I was being honest from start to finish. And then finally, after 30 pages, this is part of my undergraduate thesis, and I didn't do anything original here. I was just following in the footsteps of the masters. But at the end of all the equations, the energy density is infinite. The energy density of empty space with no additives is infinite. So imagine that space, that of course all of space, permeated by infinite energy, from which virtual particles, configurations of space of mass energy, can emerge. So in a similar fashion, oh, this is a metaphor, just for fun. But imagine all of the stories you've told yourself, about yourself, about the mass of your body and the energy of your mind and all these additives out of which we weave, we fashion like sculptors. Or much more like Gepetto, because his sculptor moved around and actually looked like it was kind of a little bit human. Imagine then just taking it all away, pulling it out, pulling out all the constituents, pulling out the story, pulling out all the fabrications and conceptual designations, just pulling them, all, pulling them all out until there's just the empty space of awareness filled with the infinite energy of Buddha nature. And out of that infinite energy of Buddha nature, Fashion yourself as a virtual Avalokiteshvara. As real as anything else, but fashioned only out of the energy of the zero point, the zero point energy of the, of the of empty space. Fashioning that. But what is ever so crucial for anyone who wants to venture into such practice is that you don't then turn the, poise, the, the medicine into poison. And that is reify that, the new story. Think, oh, I, Alan Wallace, 61-year-old 60 California guy with blah, blah, education. That was one story I'm throwing me out. But now I've got the real me. I've looked at I'm really white. And I've really got forearms. And I've really... And reifying that. 
then you take something that could be an elixir to, li uh, to liberate and you just turn that into one more reified, deluded story. Right? So that's kind of important. That as you arise as Avalokiteshvara or Manjushri or whatever, that you arise as a virtual, empty of inherent nature and yet filled with creative energy. And the compassion is real, the wisdom is real, the energy is real. But just don't crystallize, reify the personification. Well, not so. Any questions or insights? Yes, we'll start with Yen. I have uh, two questions. One at a time, though. Um, the uh, substrate consciousness, consciousness is uh, individual. That is correct. And the uh, subtra and uh, uh, Buddha nature is, is uh, individual or all essential being the same? Buddha nature? And substra. Well, the substrate, the substrate is simply the space that the substrate consciousness is conscious of. Right? So when you are attending to the space of the mind and its contents, and eventually your mind with which you are attending to that space of the mind dissolves into substrate consciousness, then that dharmadhatu, that space of the mind that you're attending to, that dissolves into substrate. So it's your own space. It's your own space. The appearance of my white shirt, the appearance of my gray hair, silver hair, gray hair, that, you're, that you see, that's arising in your substrate. I can't see my hair, but you can. So the appearance of my hair that you see is arising in your substrate. Not Suzanne's substrate, not Massimo's substrate. The appearance of my hair that they see is arising in their substrate. So substrate, substrate consciousness, they're always linked together. They're individual. Okay? They're individual. But now, on the other hand, rupatatu, form realm, oh, you don't have your own form realm. That's, that's general. Beings can be born into form realm. That's what Plato was talking about, I believe. This is my interpretation, clearly. Plato, Socrates. But actually being born in such a realm. He said born in a kind of divine realm. Well, the form realm is a divine realm. The, the Brahma Viharas are divine abidings because it will take you up to the form realm. You know, it, it's a divine realm. Not ultimately, it's not ultimate, but it's pretty nice. And so the Rupadhatu, that's generic, that's universal. You don't have your own, but your substrate's your own. And when it comes to Buddha nature, Buddha nature, then I think the most important thing to hold in mind is that the Buddha nature, Rikpa, and I'm speaking from Dzogchen perspective, that Rikpa, or Buddha nature, transcends all conceptual constructs. It is free of the eight extremes of conceptual elaboration, okay? categories, birth and death, one and many, coming and going, or same and different, these kind of things. And so... When it says chik dudel the deba, it's beyond enumeration. That is, the Buddha nature is beyond one and many. You're saying, well, which is it? Is there just one or are there many? And it's beyond the question. So when it comes to Rikpa, that's where it, it's like we're, we're carrying the luggage of conceptual mind with us. And we're like little Pac-Man in the old video game, first video game, perhaps little Pac-Man. We're, we're going up trying to gobble up all of reality with concepts. Buddhism, Christianity, quantum, quantum, quantum cosmology, food for thought, right? 
when it comes, and we're, and we're putting it all, all into the baggage of our conceptual beliefs, our ideas, right? So big, if you're very learned, then you have big suitcases of all the things you've acquired conceptually. When you come to Rikpa, you have to put your suitcases down. And then you just go in, because only a Rikpa realizes Rikpa. Conceptual mind will never get it. So the, the question is a good question, but it's a question for conceptual mind, and Rikpa is beyond conceptual mind. And the little Pac-Man of conceptual mind cannot swallow Rikpa. Rikpa can swallow conceptual mind. Yeah, because in uh, um, some Mahayana sutras say, uh, from what I learned, uh, to explain uh, compassion and loving kindness yes. uh, is uh, always from one uh, symbol. From one but, uh, sim- symbol. From one symbol. symbol? Yeah. Symbol? Uh, it say the Buddha nature is somewhat like uh, ocean. Yes. And uh, our individual thinking yeah. or substrate uh, consciousness is yeah. somewhat like the wave. Yeah. So. Yeah. In uh, basically, because the Buddha nature from all sensual being mm-hmm. is the same. It's from, undifferentiated. Uh, from, uh, it's yeah. undifferentiated. Yeah. So if we uh, release the uh, substrate uh, consciousness, then we will recognize uh, in, the, um, in the ocean yeah. of sensual being, yeah. uh, we are no bound. No boundaries. Yeah, no boundaries. Yeah. So from this uh, perspective that we owe in um, uh, Buddha nature because uh-huh. we are we are one. So uh, the compassion and right. loving kindness it's a uh, it's uh, just uh, recognize mm-hmm. and then you uh, rest in this uh, um, this experience yeah. from like in the ocean. I understand. Then uh, developed the and then. Developed, develop, developed yeah. the loving kindness and the compassion. Yeah. So I don't know how to. I understand um, in this approach. Yeah. The loving kindness and uh, uh, compassion. I don't know how how in uh, Vajrayana explain this uh, this uh, ocean mm-hmm. of whole, uh, human uh, sensual being. These are all, everything you said was really very well articulated and I think also accurate. I think the sutra you're referring to, I think that's a good account. I don't know exactly what sutra, but it's familiar. Another, another metaphor, because again, when you speak of ocean and wave, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. And it's important, at, whether it's in physics or whether it's in Buddhism, that we don't equate the model with the reality, the metaphor with the reality. Metaphors are useful, but as the finger is useful in pointing to the moon. But if you say, oh, that's where the moon is, and you look right at the tip of the finger, then you've missed something. And so another metaphor used is that rikpa is melted and substrate is frozen. But they're both water. And when you realize the nature of your substrate consciousness, really realize its, its ultimate nature, then you'll see it's never been anything other than rikpa. It's not something else added on to Rikpa. It is a crystallization of Rikpa. Or, to use the metaphor you used, it's a wave that just emerges from the ocean, but it's not different than the ocean, right? Um, but all metaphors have their limits or limitations. That's why they're metaphors and not just the reality itself. And so 
there are statements. I've seen it in Tibetan. Shoku nyakchik. Shoku nyakchik, it says. There is but one Dharmakaya. There's only one Dharmakaya. So it's said. In the Uttara Tantra, the Uttara Tantra attributed to Maitreya, the, the, the Buddha nature of all sentient beings on that level, undifferentiated. Do you have your own, Yen's own discrete, with his own boundaries, your own Buddha nature, my Buddha nature? Don't get your Buddha nature close to mine. Mine's pure, I'm not sure about yours. You know? Does it have boundaries? No, it clearly not. But then if we leap, ah, and I get it. In terms of minus one, zero, one, and two, it's one. We just put it into a conceptual category, because one is a conceptual category. Ask any mathematician. It's more than zero and less than two, right? And as soon as we go there and think, ah, and I've got it, there's just one rikpa, one rikpa. then why aren't Buddha Shakyamuni and Maitreya the same? And they're not. They're not. Buddha Shakyamuni, the fourth Buddha. Buddha Maitreya, the next Buddha to come. Not the same person. So why aren't they not the same? So I think there's the danger of getting a really beautiful image. Everything you said was very good and very clearly and I think accurately articulated. But it's so easy then to freeze it Say, ah, now I've got it. I've got it. And then lock on and reify, taking now Rikpa or Buddha nature as an object of the mind and reifying it as one thing. And I think that's a problem. Okay? So all of all these references to Buddha nature, to Rikpa, whether in the Buddha nature teachings, the Tagatagarbha Sutra, the Mahaparanivana Sutra, the Uttara Tantra from Maitreya, or the Dzogchen, the Mahamudra teachings, the Chan teachings, and all of these especially when it comes to teachings on Buddha nature, especially there, the words ultimately are really all instrumental rather than descriptive. Instrumental rather than descriptive. The words are designed to be used to lead you to the direct experience. They are not designed to be a description, so if you understand it, you've got it. Right? And so a lot of language is descriptive. If, if we start describing the United States, we can see it has 330 million people, California has 35 million people, something like 12% of the overall population. It has a very wide distribution of ethnic groups. It, and we can, I, can start, I can go on and on and on. And if you, if you didn't know where the United States was, by the time I had finished giving you a full account, you would have some accurate idea of that country. Because my words are not descriptive of telling you how to get to America. I'm just telling you what America's like. And I can tell you the shape and the size and the, where the mountains are and the rivers are and all of that. And so that you could walk away with a pretty clear, accurate, conceptual map and idea and understanding. Okay, Alan gave me a thumbnail sketch. Never heard of America before, but now I think I got it. You know, That would be descriptive. But whenever it comes to Rikpa, it's always really fundamentally, all the metaphors, all the teachings are really all about how to get you to visit. Second question. <laughs> Uh, is uh, when we uh, imagine uh, the Buddha in in uh, like a light. Yeah, yeah, very common. Is that uh, symbolic or or real? Because uh, I, I I have this question because with light. Yeah, I understand. Sure. So many uh, visualization. Yeah. Uh, from the light. And I'm not sure, is this use our mental imagination mm-hmm. or is real, the Buddha nature or Ripa 
It's like a light. Yeah. And this is quite similar with a Christian. Oh, yeah, yes. God is light. Yes. I, I am the way, the, tr- I am the, way the truth, and the light. Yeah. I think it was light, right? Not, not life, light, I'm pretty light, sure. Yeah. Light. light, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And then, etc. So, you know, it crops up everywhere. Of course, it's not only Christianity and Judaism. It's, it's really in all contemplative traditions. So, the light is probably the most common. Augustine described God, in terms of, in terms of direct experience of God, as the changeless light, immutable light. I think I've heard that one before. Okay, so it crops up throughout history, east and west, from theistic traditions, non-theistic traditions, polytheistic traditions, and so forth. <laughs> so, is it simply symbolic or is it real? Well, one can ask the same of the substrate consciousness. When we say that the three qualities of the substrate consciousness, when you are knowing it clearly, that is, when you're not doped out because you're deep asleep and the mind is veiled with dullness. One of the three qualities, the second one is light, luminosity. De sel mi topa. Sel means clear, bright, luminous, like that. And so we can ask, I'm going to just ask a parallel question. Well, okay, the luminosity, the brightness, the clarity, the vividness, these are all synonymous, selwa of Tibetan. Uh, is that symbolic or is the substrate consciousness really of the nature of light? Or as in the Pali Canon, brightly shining mind. Brightly shining mind. Referring to Bhavanga. That's the Theravada interpretation. And I'm saying Bhavanga is the same as substrate consciousness. Brightly shining. Okay, is it really bright? And does it really shine? Or is that just symbolic? And likewise, then the same question about Rigpa. It's called, when Rigpa arises in the process of death after the blackout, when your mind collapses into the substrate consciousness, and for most people, you just blacked out, what comes after that? Clear light of death. Clear light, the same word. Chiwe yourself. Chiwe yourself. Clear light of death. Clear light. Keeps on coming up. You can't escape it. Clear light of death. So, is it symbolic or is it real? What I would suggest is to turn it 180 degrees around. Rotate it 180 degrees. And that is when we look at the light on the ceiling. Those are quite bright. These lights on the ceiling, quite bright. I have to squint. That light, the light of the sun. The light that you see if you're having a dream of being out in the desert on a hot, sunny day. And it's really bright and you in the dream and you look up at the sun and you have to find your dream sunglasses because the sun is so bright. Could be, yeah? You could dream of a very bright, bright, sunny day in a dream. All of the light that we see with the, with the eyes, the sun, electric lights and so forth, all the light that we see, all the clarity, luminosity that we see in a dream, Those are simply reflections. Those are symbolic. And the real light is the luminosity of the substrate consciousness. And the ultimate light, which gives, yields, the light of the substrate consciousness, is the light of Rigpa. That's the real light. And everything else is simply a symbolic display. Relative. Reflections. But the real light, the real light, 
is that of Rigpa. That Rigpa alone illuminates. Rigpa alone illuminates. Nothing else illuminates. Right? So that's the real light. And everything else is simply a reflection, or a refraction, or a symbol. I think so. So in our imagination, let's only use one uh, metaphoric uh, yes. uh, ability yeah. to all of the ima- to all of the it. all of the stage generation, all of the visualizations, Vajrasattva, Avalokiteshvara, light going out from the heart, light coming into the heart, and so forth and so on. All of that is skillful means. Skillful means. It's the same thing that I was saying before, the finger pointing to the moon. It's all skillful means. It's all imagination. It's all symbolic, of course. It's all symbolic. It's all useful to get you from moving away from this conceptualization of ordinary appearances and ordinary identity, releasing that into emptiness, replacing that with divine pride and pure vision, a new story based upon, instead of impure karma, a new story based upon Buddha nature, a much deeper story. But it's all skillful means. It's all skillful means. And so this is why in the Dzogchen, very explicitly, so there's no, no Alan Wallace opinion here, it's straight from Dzogchen, Dujon Lingba, or in the Vajra Essence and other t- texts, uh, mind treasures of him. Said so for those who are drawn to elaboration, those who like a very rich, multifaceted, rich and textured path, then by all means, with your basis in Shamat and Vipassana, Bodhicitta, by all means, venture into stage regeneration. Stage of completion. Very good. It's very elaborate. Five Buddha, fa- by five Buddha families and their consorts and their Buddha fields and many things to visualize and mantras and seed syllables. Knock yourself out. You know, so many marvelous and very deep symbolic elaborations. And likewise, stage of completion. He said, but all of that, stage regeneration, completion, all of that is designed for one purpose. And that is to realize Rikpa. And all those displays are nothing other than displays of Rikpa. So for those who are not drawn to such elaboration, just by temperament, but are drawn to more direct, simple, unelaborated path, shamata vipassana, go directly to texture, just to Rikpa itself. Because everything else, all the mandalas, all of that, are simply displays, all the five Buddha families, simply displays displays of Rigpa. So instead of looking at all of the foliage, all of the manifestations, all the effulgences emerging from Rigpa, you just, just go straight to Rigpa. And all the benefits of stage of generation and completion will arise just from realizing Rigpa. Fully realizing Rigpa. By texture, by breaking through the individuation of your own substrate consciousness, breaking through that to the infinite expanse of Rigpa, but not just resting in that sublime, inconceivable stillness of Rigpa, but then drawing forth through the practice of direct crossing over, or tutgel, drawing forth the infinite, infinite potential. That infinite energy of the, of the empty space, this is the infinite energy of Dhammadhatu, infinite energy of Buddha nature. And drawing that out, drawing that forth, until it's fully manifest, and then you're, then you're completely awake then you're Buddha. So stage of generation completion, very skillful means. For some people, enormously useful. But according to Jujum Lingba, not necessary for everybody.
You may just go shamatha vipassana and go directly to texture and realize all the benefits of stage generation and completion just by realizing Buddha nature because that's the source of all of the rest. So that's that. So, good night and enjoy a wonderful day of silence. Uh, I hope it is very rich, very full for you. And I'll see you around.